Welcome to Rise to Offend, a podcast that serves people who rose to offend in society and their legacy today. I'm your host, Petra Spych, and this week we'll be doing part three of three on the counterculture music festival, Woodstock. A music festival that highlighted young people's rejection in the current system and would spawn a mainstream movement of counterculture in America through art and love. The backdrop of the Vietnam War, the civil rights movement, and an upbringing surrounded by fear of a nuclear war, this generation labeled the baby boomers. Through their movement and art and music would fuel and motivate a focus on being human and reject rules that benefit a few, separated cultures, and control the mass by fear campaigns. Billed as three days of peace and music, the seeds of Woodstock would be put together in early 1969 by the efforts of Michael Lang, Artie Kornfeld, Joel Rosenman, and John P. Roberts. At this stage in our story, the success of the gathering of Woodstock was resonating throughout America, and many of the bands that performed, including Jefferson Airplane and The Grateful Dead, would discuss how amazing the experience was and would get promoters to try and recapture it four months later with a counterculture rock concert in Northern California at the Altamont Speedway. This music kind of started with the idea of making powerful music that had a message that was about integrity and unity and this kind of solidarity between band and crowd. And it became like, you know, a bunch of thugs raping women in the pit and then burning the festival to the ground. We popularized the genre, which now has just totally run amok. I just thought, man, this is like, what have we done? And joining me this week, Brandon Guchon and Jocelyn Sharp. Many bands were offered the Woodstock Festival, but declined for a variety of reasons. One of those bands was the Rolling Stones. Everybody seems to be ready. Are you ready? For the first time in three years, the greatest rock and roll band in the world, the Rolling Stones. The Rolling Stones. The reason they declined is singer Mick Jagger was in Australia filming a film called Ned Kelly, and guitarist Keith Richards was celebrating the birth of his son, Marlon. The demand for the Rolling Stones was high in America, and at this point, it would be their first trip to the States since 1966. When they announced a North American tour, fans were ecstatic, but there was a backlash due to the high ticket prices. This is Stefan Parnick, KSAN Radio, San Francisco. Well, the Rolling Stones tour of the United States is over. They wound it up with a free concert at the Altamont Speedway for more than 300,000 people. There were four births, four deaths, and an awful lot of scuffles reported. We received word that someone was stabbed to death in front of the stage by a member of the Hells Angels. Nothing's confirmed on that. We were there. We didn't see it, but we did see a lot. We want to know now what you saw. Our phones are open. We'd like to hear from you. What was the Altamont free concert like? The tour was booked November 7th at Colorado all the way until November 30th, which would end the tour at West Palm Beach, Florida. But as a reaction to the high ticket prices of the tour, the band would announce a free concert on December 6th, 1969 in Northern California. This idea would quickly be seen and labeled as Woodstock West, despite it having no direct tie to Woodstock. The thing is, it's just like everyone coming and having a good time in the concert's not actually the like the proscenium of a theatre. It's like an excuse for everyone to sort of, you know, get together and like talk to each other and sleep with each other and bawl each other and get very stoned and, and and just have a nice night out and a good day, you know. I mean, you know, do you understand? You know, not, it's not just like getting up there and seeing the <coughs> grateful aeroplane and the you know, sort of rolling, <laughs> rolling, sort of rolling dead. You know? <laughs> 
What are the challenges of trying to recapture a moment and festival four months after the original? Uh, the expectations are going to be insanely high. And once again, they're running into the same problems. Four months of planning? You had how many people show up to the original festival? Half a million people, and you're expecting to pull off this magic in another four months. Never, And then completely forgetting all the major problems that happened during the concert. Like, learn something from your past mistakes. But again, money talks, and if we can capitalize... Let's do it while the iron's hot. Let's let's strike while the iron's hot. Dick Carter's on the line. He's offering us a speedway at Altamont. Hello, Dick. This is Mel Belli for the Stones. If, if if they were to perform in the speedway, is the is the speedway uh, open so that they can be seen from the people that can't get in? Uh, yeah, and I'm sure we can work something out because I want the publicity. You want the publicity? Right. Well, you take the publicity and. Uh, the Rolling Stones don't want any money. It's for charity, so I'll take the money. Right. <laughs> All right. Well, why don't I do this? Why don't I talk with these people here? And then I'll get back with you. And then uh, if we have to sign anything up and if you need any insurance, which I'm sure you will want, yes. and all the rest of that stuff, I'll work, wor uh, work with you in the morning. Okay. All right. I'll call you back later then after I talk with them, Dick. Bye. Organizers, we're going to do a three-day festival headlined by the Rolling Stones and the Grateful Dead, and immediately tried to make it happen at San Jose University's practice football field, but that would fall through. And the second venue they would attempt was at Golden Gate Park. But due to a football game between the Bears and the 49ers, that venue would be impractical and the city would not issue permits. So they'd finally find and settle on Sears Point Raceway. And the Woodstock lighting design and stage designer, Chip Monk, would construct the stage. Chip Monk was currently on tour with the Rolling Stones, doing all the lighting design for the, the tour they were currently on. Now, due to the fact that the Sears Raceway was on top of a hill and would face the audience, the stage would be built only 39 inches high. Then, the owner of the raceway stated that they would not let anyone on the raceway unless they got $300,000 up front as per the agreement. The concert promoter did not have the money to give them and had to move the venue on December 4th. The concert was taking place on Saturday, December 6th. So they called in Michael Lang of Woodstock fame to help them move and find a venue in 48 hours time. And he would find the Altamont Speedway. He's offered the Altamont uh, Speedway. There's not enough room and for And there's no time to move it. you got to tear down a stage and a scaffolding. You've stage scaffolding. The phones are in. The generators are there. Everything is left to go. It's anticipated that the amount of kids now traveling cross-country, you may have anywhere from five to 20,000 kids starting to arrive sometime through the day tomorrow. They're all lining up at the airports to come in from as far away as New York. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that now? Yeah. Yeah. You've got to be kidding. You have no idea what, what goes on here. It's, uh, it's an amazing phenomenon. It's like the lemmings of the sea. Mike Lang is on the line. Yeah, Mike. John says that he doesn't think you can make it over there at the Altamont uh, Speedway. Do you want to talk uh, directly to Mike? Yes. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, Mike. I got the impression from everybody over where you are that there was no way of moving to that speedway. We could do it. If we have to, we can move. We want to, but if we have to, we can't. Lang would have Chipmunk move the stage built from the Sears Wasteway, but the problem with that at Altamont, that stage was not on a hill. So the bands would be 38, 39 inches high, and the audience would be able to be at equal height with them. Also, there was no barricade, and like Woodstock, the late venue change would ensure not enough restrooms 
or medical tents. So because of the stage issue, they needed security, and by the recommendations of bands like Jefferson Airplane and the Grateful Dead, the Rolling Stones would hire the Oakland chapter of the Hells Angels and pay them with free beer. Just a quick question, though. You were at Woodstock, and you've now been out to Altamont, right, last night. How does it stack up? Do you have the room? I think we have the room, sure. I think we can hold as many people as want to come. Can you change locations that fast? Well, we had a much bigger operation to change at Woodstock. We did it pretty quick. I don't think we'll have much problem. We're just dealing with a free concert. That's what we want to present. And I think that's what the Stones are up to. They want to play, and they want to play here. Is this going to be Woodstock West? Well, it's going to be San Francisco. Yep. An outlaw motorcycle gang would be used as security for the stage and the show. Why do you think the promoters thought this was a good idea, or was it just done in desperation? You know what's funny is that uh, motorcycle clubs are part of American society. You know, they have been part of Amer- for American society for as long as pretty much motorcycles have existed. Um, so I think that the thing about motorcycle clubs, even like Hell's Angels that have such deep criminal ties, is that we do feel a comfort in them. Because the thing about the these criminal societies that are this deep rooted and this old is they live by a moral code. They have a code that's the only thing that keeps them together. You know, like these are the guys that today protect, you know, sexual assault victims from their, you know, when they their week leading up to testify, you know, like this is the kind of stuff they do. So I I think that this just probably felt normal. And when that kind of lifestyle was sort of like accepted, you know, some people were just criminals. (laughs) Right. (laughs) You know, that was Sam Cutler, one of the organizers of the Altamont free concert. I think we've got one of the Hells Angels on the line, Sonny Barger. I got that right, Sonny. Yeah. Okay. What's up? I didn't go there to police nothing, man. I ain't no cop. I ain't never gonna ever pretend to be a cop. And this Mick Jagger, like, put it all on the angels, man. Like, he used us for dupes, man. You know, and as far as I'm concerned, we were the biggest suckers for that idiot that I can ever see. And you know what? They told me if I could sit on the edge of the stage so nobody would climb over me, you know, I could drink beer until the show was over. And that's what I went there to do. But you know what? When they started messing over our bikes, they started it. Well, you know, to your to your point about the motorcycle club, uh, you know, they talk about this criminal element, but it's one percent. There is a reason why motorcycles. If you ever look at a guy's jacket, if they have a little patch on it and it has one percent on it, that means he's the outlaw biker. They always say one percent of all bikers are outlaws. Uh, but to Pete's question, uh, yes, it was out of desperation, and also yes, it was. Uh, I think it was uh, out of a marketing ploy because. It sounds tough. The Rolling Stones back in those days were a tough band. They had sounds like, you know, Street Fighting Man. It's like that, that was a man band, the Rolling Stones. And when you add in the element of the Hells Angels, now you have this alpha male rock mentality, roll. rock and roll, let's go. It's like, yeah, it, I do think that there was a... Uh, you know, a marketing ploy behind that. And to your point, desperation on the budget. You know, the yeah. only security you could hire for what they pay. <laughs> yeah, and, and what can go wrong when you give a bunch of, you know, when you bikers that have been labeled violent <laughs> beer? You know, like, you well, just, if free you, beer. If yeah. you pay anybody in beer, it's probably going to go wrong. Yes. I would yeah. think, right? If it's not money. So, but that's just kind yeah, of... Yeah, ask us. We're comedians. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I, I can tell you right now, you pay me in beer, you're going to get half-ass performance, a lot of slurred S's. I don't know if you think we pay... $50 for them things or steal them or pay a lot for them or what. 
ain't nobody going to kick my motorcycle. And they might think because they're in a crowd of 300,000 people that they can do it and get away with it. But when you're standing there looking at something that's your life and everything you got is invested in that thing and you love that thing better than you love anything in the world and you see a guy kick it, you know who he is. You're going to get him. And you know what? They got got. I am not no peace creep by any sense of the word. And you can call them people flower children and this and that. Some of them people was loaded on some drugs that it's just too bad we wasn't loaded on because they come running off of the hill yelling, hey, you know, and jump on somebody. And it wasn't even always jumping on angels. But when they jumped on an angel, they got hurt. Now, Hell's Angels would be armed with pool cues. And as the day progressed, the drinking... <laughs> By the angels and the drug intake from the audience, the mood turned ugly fast and fights would break out throughout and constantly during performances. All this would be documented for the 1970 film Gimme Shelter, a film that would follow the Stones on this North American tour. We're partying like you. Hey. And you know, that's really stupid. Hey, man, you guys do not have to stay on the stage, man. They're not going to hassle us, really. They're not really that... It's you really don't not worth it. with anybody in particular. You've got to keep your bodies off each other unless you intend love. People get weird, and you need people like the angels to keep people in line, but the angels also, you know, you don't bust people in the head for nothing. So both sides are uh, fucking up temporarily. Let's not keep fucking up. The film shows the violence and unrest throughout the free concert. A couple of things shown is Mick Jagger, lead singer of the Rolling Stones, steps off a helicopter and he is immediately punched in the face by a fan. Marty Balin, the lead male singer of Jefferson Airplane, is knocked out cold by a person wearing a Hell's Angels vest. And the Grateful Dead then show up and refuse to play due to what happened to Balin. And they were the prime organizers of the festival and who recommended the Hells Angels for this show. Oh, that's what the story is here? Yeah. Oh, bummer. Really, yeah. I mean, like, it's scary. Who's doing all the beating? Hells Angels. Hells Angels are doing beating on musicians? Marty got beat up. They put fight on the stage. Doesn't seem right, man. It's, it's, it's really weird, man. It's really weird. Oh, man. There's lots of people. Really? Finally, when the Rolling Stones take the stage, a visibly frightened Mick Jagger tries to engage the audience, and when the band performs a track Under My Thumb, the crowd starts to rush the stage, and a murder of an 18-year-old man by Hell's Angels member Alan Pissarro is captured on film, with Pissarro stabbing him to death on the stage. Uh, uh, people, I mean, who's fighting what for? Who's fighting and what for? Why are we fighting? Why are we fighting? We don't want to fight. Come on. Do we want, who wants to fight? Who is it? Hey, you know, I mean, like, every other scene has been cool. Like, like look, cat. That guy there, 
if he doesn't stop it, man. Listen, either those cats call it, man, or we don't play. Come on. Can we have a doctor down here now to the front? Three hundred thousand people attended the shows, and two other murders uh, took place in hit-and-run capacities. And many cars were stolen, and property damage in the area would be excessive, and it would all be documented on film. The Altamont concert would happen four months after Woodstock and would be seen as the end of the counterculture movement of the late 1960s. I, I cannot see what's going on. I just know that every time we get to a number, something happens. I don't know what's going on, who's doing what. It's just a scuffle. All I can ask you, San Francisco, is like the whole thing. Like, this could be the most beautiful evening we've had for this winter. You know, and we've really, you know, why, why don't let's f*** it up, man. Come on, let's get it together. I can't do any more than just ask you, to beg you just to keep it together. You can do it, it's within your power, everyone. Everyone, hell's angels, everybody. Let's just keep ourselves together. You know, if we, if we are all one, let's show we're all one. There's one thing, uh, what we need, Sam, we need an ambulance. We need a doctor by that scaffold there. If there's a doctor, can you get to there? How devastating is the Altamont concert to the immediate legacy of what happened in Bethel, New York, just four months earlier? Okay, you're talking about accidental death that happened in Woodstock. One. Yeah, accidental death. And then you're talking about No murder. cases of other violence. Yes, and no cases of other violence. Somebody then, punched Mick Jagger in the face. Yes. <laughs> Kill that man. <laughs> Can't even get any satisfaction. Now you're going to punch him in the face. It's like, so, I mean, the idea is, yeah, dude, once there's murder taking place, and then it's captured on film, I'm sorry. It's a wrap. We've already seen exactly how much the counterculture can move. You have parameters. Once you break outside, it's not just counterculture anymore. It's straight up anarchy, and there's going to be death. Is there an officer or a policeman here? What happened here, anyway? Yeah, he pulled out a gun. Huh? He did? Which yes, the Hells Angels took the gun away from him. One of them has it now. He showed it to me. And uh, they uh, proceeded to put him down on the ground and start kicking him. And he has a couple stab wounds in his back and uh, one over his ear. Here. Tried to keep him alive, and uh, when we got here, the doctor checked him out, and that was we it. pronounced him dead as soon as morning. We have a request for so you have two examples though you have woodstock east or woodstock as we know at 69 peace love beautiful even though it was set to fail in every way possible woodstock west anarchy murder mayhem burglary Riots. So you have the two polar examples of what can happen with free concerts like this. And right? that's why Woodstock is still considered such a magical event, because 
all those things that happened in California, what, half a million people? More. More people. There's 200,000 more people that showed up in Woodstock as opposed to the California concert with the Stones. And there was no murder. Two less people died. Two less people died. And no rock stars got punched in the face. Yes, no rock stars were harming in the filming of this production. (laughs) That's what happened at Woodstock. It's all right. It's kind of weird up here. Hey, man, I'd like to mention that the Hells Angels just uh, smashed Marty Ballin in the face and knocked him out for a bit. I'd like to thank you for that. There's uh, other ways... Wait, you, you, uh, is this on? You're Damn talking man. to me, I'm going to talk to I'm you. I'm not talking to you, man. I'm talking to the people that hit my lead singer you're in the head. You're talking to my people. Right. Now, let me tell you what's happening. You! Man, what's you're not happening. happening. Hey! Oh! No! Oh, dude, hold it. Hold it. No! Oh, Altamont or Woodstock Westwood now historically have no tie to the original Woodstock. And as time went by and the documentary film Woodstock became a huge hit in theaters, the distance between the two shows would start and now have little to no ties historically. So it's farewell to the 60s. Perhaps not the best decade in history, but certainly not the worst either. There may be good reason to look back in anger, but perhaps because of what happened in the 60s, there may also be reason to look forward in hope. Let's hope so, anyway. Howard has a comment. Howard? Frank, the years of the 60s, which end in a few hours, have a bad reputation that is not entirely justified. Some things got worse, obviously, like dope addiction and consequent crime, but most essentials got better. Food is more and better, even in Asia, where formerly famine nations are now self-sufficient. It's easier, not harder, to get a job. Race discrimination is less, not greater. The really big thing that changed in the 60s is our own outlook. Pollution and poverty have always been with us. We just became aware of them and insistent that something be done. The consumer has always been hoodwinked by powerful producers. We just decided we won't stand for it. We began to rebel. TV and other news coverage is better, not worse. We simply developed more demanding standards. The Vietnam War is hell, but all wars are. We just grew a different threshold of the amount of hell we will take without shouting. President Eisenhower used to say that there can be no progress until the hearts and minds of people change. Well, that's what's happened in the 60s. They changed with a vengeance. Mediocre government, lazy administration, the negligent rich have always been with us. The change is we won't stand for what we once accepted as normal. I don't believe this is contrived optimism. I believe it's factual that the sour 60s will in time's fullness be seen to have been an era of rare creativity. Standards were set higher than they've ever been before, and a resolve that those standards be met was born that is much meaner than any resolve we've had before. Every anniversary of the original Woodstock would get a show, starting with its 10-year anniversary in 1979, where many of the same performers would get on stage, but the show would take place at Madison Square Garden. The vibe would be similar to any other rock and roll concert. Then at the 20-year mark in 1989, what would be known as the Forgotten Woodstock would happen at Max Yasker's Farm in Bethel, New York. The concert would take place on the same dates, and a total lunar eclipse would occur during the event. Now, this event just started with a folk guitarist named Rich Pell, and there would be no promotion and just word of mouth. No money was being made, and there was no stage, but just people playing in the field of the original performance. When all was said and done, over 100,000 passerbys attended the event, with many unknown or local musicians performing. 
The success of bringing people to Woodstock 20 with no name artists or performing showed original promoters that the name Woodstock could draw 100,000 people without even having an artist behind it. And on the morning of Tuesday, August 15th, 1989, which was the anniversary date, TV network crews arrived at Bethel to film footage of approximately 1,500 people who'd basically make an anniversary pilgrimage to the place where Woodstock happened, and that was basically it, or at least or so we thought. Prior to the 20th anniversary celebration, there was a folk musician named Rich Pell, who got permission to stage a concert at the original site. Now, Pell had no idea how many people would show up, though he'd done some planning ahead of time, including providing toilets and other basic necessities. He and a group of people simply wanted to celebrate Woodstock and had no ambition of creating another massive undertaking. They didn't really need an advertising budget because they were just honoring the event and really had no expectations. But what Pell and those present with them wouldn't know is that many other people felt the same way they did. And many people would make the pilgrimage quietly to the grounds just to be there for the anniversary. And when the TV crews left, several hundred people were still at the site. But as the music began at 5.07 p.m., the exact time that Richie Haven started the show 20 years earlier, it became clear that many others were on their way. And by Wednesday evening, it's estimated that more than 7,000 people were in attendance. And by Friday, the figure had swelled to up to 30,000. What did Woodstock 20 show the original team that Woodstock and its brand can do for an audience. There's still money to be made. We still got them. The name is still huge. I'm sure if they had focus groups back then, they're like, look at the focus groups. They still think Woodstock is the concert to beat. You know, they just jumped on it. And this is like, they, they saw this 10 years in advance. They're like, oh, this next one, we're going to make a lot of money. This is the benefit of being a pioneer in your market. When you are a pioneer in your market and you shoot to the top, look at anyone who did it, iPhone, any, anyone on that sort of level, if you are the pioneer in your market at what you're giving consumers and you shoot to the top, you could fail a thousand times. People will still be like, yeah, I'll give the next one a shot. Yeah. So there was a journalist named Stu Fox who wrote about the event. He said, most people seem to have a spontaneous decision to come to the festival site. Long Islanders Bob Saul and John Hirsch, who came 20 years prior to the original Woodstock, said on Sunday, we said, let's go to Woodstock. We hopped in the car and went. And they interviewed another guy named Freddie from Charlotte, who said he just decided to come while watching the movie on television. And another guy named John Withers, who was a 46-year-old New Jersey history teacher, drove three hours just to spend a few hours at the site. And another guy named Jimbo came all the way from Weiser, Idaho, just because it's Woodstock. There were thousands more just like them, and word would soon spread, and more people would appear at the Woodstock site. And local bands provided equipment to stage a larger-scale performance, while essential services were managed by a handful of volunteers. An attempt to charge a $5 parking fee to help cover the cost was soon abandoned as well. In fact, there really weren't many commercial operators or companies at the event. Some of the highlights of the event included a lunar eclipse on August 16th, where there was a crowd-powered attempt to call down the moon, which was led by Jack Hardy and Al Hendricks, who was the father of Jimi Hendrix, who told the crowd, everybody's here in the spirit of Woodstock. Hundreds of unannounced bands showed up and waited for an opportunity to take the stage. Even the original promoter, Michael Lang, also made an appearance. The official attendance figures were never known, but journalist Stu Fox reported that 50,000 signatures were added to the Woodstock Monument guestbook, though according to the New York Times, one of those was Janis Joplin and that many more people arrived after the 1989 festival was over. A community was formed, Stu Fox would say. People of all ages and backgrounds came together to enjoy themselves and each other, 
and the reborn Woodstock nation generated its own services, culture, and customs. Everything that happened on that couple days was really dependent on an effort of volunteers who showed up, and those people were the friendliest group that this writer had ever encountered, he would write in his piece. Now the seeds of Woodstock 1994, the 25th anniversary of the festival, would begin with three of the four promoters of the original Woodstock Festival, Michael Lang, John P. Roberts, and Joel Rosenman. And this time they would not be focused on the peace and love, but the successful money-making venture. They would not set the show up again at the iconic Max Yasger farm of the original, but instead at Winston Farms in Saugerties, New York, about 100 miles from the original site. All the preparations would be professional, and MTV would have a huge stake in its success, having pay-per-view performances available for the two days. I'm here, Bill Bellamy, and I am being mesmerized by all this great music, peace and harmony. You, my friend at home, should make sure you see the entire event. All you have to do is call your local cable company. It's a pay-per-view concert. Very, very simple. You know how many people are here? Over 250,000 people. They don't even have any more parking lots. People are sleeping in trees and stuff like that. Birds are even, there's even not one room for a bird. All the birds are here. The festival would be billed Woodstock 94. Two more days of peace and music and would be geared to the musical revolution that the Generation X youth would be a part of, and that would be grunge and alternative rock. They didn't have one of these at the first Woodstock, but look around. This is a store at Woodstock, and uh, I got a, this guy gave me this. That's, that's salt and pepper, right? You guys selling a lot of stuff here or what? Loads, man. So people come here to Woodstock and they just want to buy loads of CDs, right? CDs, cameras, everything. Uh -huh. Selling cameras, selling any binoculars? Selling a lot of binoculars. Because yeah, you could hardly see from over here. A lot of a lot of people over there, so people want to stand back here so they'll get the binoculars. You know, those binoculars, they uh, they help you see, right? Uh, speaking of salt and pepper, we're going to show you a video from them, and they're performing here at Woodstock. Here's Shoop. Check it out. Uh, how important is a musical revolution to a festival's success like Woodstock 94? I don't think it's a, it's, it's not important at all. We've already seen what happens when they get bands that have no name and no popularity. They could still pull 100,000 people. They just All they want is just people talking. And because MTV is behind it and because MTV is throwing commercials behind it, now people are talking. Because back in 1994, Pete, you can back me up on this, all we did was watch MTV. That's all we did. And if it wasn't music videos, it was the spring break. It was uh, it was the covering of people. They were live outside yes. at concerts. And that's the thing. And it was because MTV is called Music TV. That's when they actually made music the focal point of the channel. So yeah, you would see you know spring break and stuff. But again, it was people. It was music. It was constantly surrounded by music, and nobody was doing it better. Then MTV. The MTV had the youth, and once you get the well, yeah. people that have the youth, it's a wrap. You're going to make money. Trent, you were very candid because you actually said, "I'm really only coming here to, for the money." And, and obviously, there was a lot of bad press saying that it was, you know, Woodstock Inc. Do you do you feel with the atmosphere here that maybe you might have been wrong? No, I mean my incentive for coming here was two main reasons. One was to I thought it would be a fun show to play, and secondly, they offered us a lot of money to play, and with the money we made from tonight's show, we can fund a tour that we would have lost an unbelievable amount of money to do, because we took a lot of production out, and I weighed that out, we'll just go out and try to do the best show we can, and um, I feared, after I committed to do it, that it would be a corporate nightmare, 
with the Pepsi logo behind the Woodstock thing. But um, from being here, I've, I've got a pretty good vibe, and I'm, I'm pleased to see that it's turned out to be, um, so far, a pretty positive thing for the fans that came here to see it. Oh, great. I think I'm going to disagree. I think that you do need a musical revolution that the youth can jump to for something like this to be not only marketed, but to be sold and for someone to be like, I have to come to an event. I don't think you can get 500,000 people to any event in modern times because there's no revolution that speaks to an entire youth culture like music used to. Okay, right. if you're talking, there's uh, no Vietnam War. I don't, yeah. I don't yeah. believe, yeah, but I think alternative rock and grunge had all the youth, man. It had it all. There like, was, where's a, where's a genre in the last 20 years we, we want to talk about? Uh, before 1994, you had the US Festival. I mean, it's like, no, you no, no, still... not before 1994. Okay. I'm talking, oh, you're talking about, about oh, now. The past? No, there has not been one. That, there that has the not last been one. one. So the, how's that How's that not a factor? Because I believe right now, because what I'm saying is, is up until then, though, there were musical revolutions. I just think that right now, the way music has been packaged, it, it, it will prevent Pete, that from ever happening again. But to Pete's point, the musical revolution of grunge was different in that it reinvigorated people going to live shows. It okay. reinvigorated the concert-going experience, you know, the same way that hair metal did. I just think that the only way for this thing to work was they had to go after the youth. I still remember Nine Inch Nails, and I still remember Green Day. I still remember those guys getting mud thrown at them. It was total chaos. Could you see yourselves coming back 25 years from now and no, doing Woodstock? I'll be dead. These guys will be car, car salesmen. <laughs> Why are you going to be dead? I, I'm bleeding, look. <laughs> I, I will not be. I, if I am, someone shoot me on stage because I, I don't want to be a part of a relic sort of situation. Oh, well, I'm, I would throw myself Nothing apart. Nothing against Crosby, Tills, and Nash, who I love, right. but it's not for me. You know, it's crash and burn lifestyle. You know. All right, well, we're going to go to a video now. Nine Inch Nails, Head Like a Hole. Now, the festival would sell 165,000 tickets, but like the original Woodstock, would see more than a half a million people show up. And again, the show would, in essence, become a free show. But the conditions were completely different, with a large security on hand to watch the crowd and food and beverage vendors throughout. All the necessities for this atmosphere was accounted for, and the audience would again be very peaceful and get along. The commercial push by MTV and the brand of Woodstock 94 Merchandising would be everywhere to promote the concert, and the performances of younger bands like Nine Inch Nails and Green Day would catapult them into superstars after this performance. Yeah, a lot of people look at Woodstock as like a some turning point. Well, I mean, it did like you know extra gig. Yeah, we got uh, you know a lot of people saw that show and stuff. But to tell you the truth, we played kind of bad. Like we did, we weren't that good that day. We were, and the thing is, is we're like 30 feet from from the, the audience. It was way back, and then finally, those kids can huck that mud, though. You know? <laughs> and uh, well, those kind of those kind of shows are like half about the music and half about, I guess, being there, right? Yeah, and half about stuff. having the biggest barbecue that you can. Yeah. <laughs> half about taking hundreds of dollars from suckers. Woodstock '94 was a profit-making venture's first and foremost that went off without a hitch and capitalized in every way for the music. Does this leave a bad taste in your mouth for the brand, or is this just the evolution of the original? I don't know. I think that there is this concept of <clears throat> nostalgia that humans have, where we do not want things that we love to evolve. 
Um, we want them to stay just the way we remember them. Yeah, and that's not the way things work, especially in society. Everybody's always moving forward, and it is inevitable when you are um, turning art into a consumer product for the consumer products related to the art to evolve with the art. You know, Woodstock 69 really defined a generation, even if those people did go on to be bankers and lawyers instead of poets and sheep shearers. It was really a culmination of all the ideals of the 60s for some Americans. Things that seem, I don't know, a little trite today, like peace, love, and brotherhood. The music was really an afterthought. and so, In fact, some of the performances really weren't very good. But that is not anything like what I have seen the last two days. All of the performances have been really great, and the sound system has been terrific. I mean, it's, it's like an armed assault up there. There are 200 microphones, 500 speakers, 750,000 watts. I mean, this entire Woodstock 94 has been planned with the precision of a military assault. Even the farms, they hired professional poison ivy pickers to take out patches of poison ivy so there wouldn't be breakouts of that. They, they also targeted special areas where there are a heck of a lot of mosquitoes and took care of those. We've already said this on this show so many times. Once you take a protest, once you take a movement and you slap a dollar sign on it, it's lost. Um, this is We're starting to see that, especially now with vendors. Vendors weren't at the first one. Maybe they wanted security at the first one, but vendors certainly weren't there. And I can guarantee you those guys at least got a percentage of all those vendors because that's how you get into it. So they're making money hand over fist in so many other ways. Way more merchandising, way more T-shirts. Way MTV is behind it. You're going to sell. So the idea behind it evolving. Yeah, it is an evolving thing. The idea of the first one was to set out and make money. Now, granted, these guys were also way younger back in the day. Now they're grown men. Now they're successful. Now it's like the only thing is the bottom line. Back in the day, these guys were young guys. They just wanted to see if it could work. Well, and they have MTV behind them. They have an entire broadcasting corporation behind but, them. But what I'm saying is... is but back doesn't in the, that show the evolution of the mantra and the belief from these original gentlemen? That's what I'm saying. It's like you uh, see... As in peace, love, this is a protest to uh, money? This well, is a that's profit. What, that's what I'm saying. It's yeah. like they they grew up. And was there a stench? How much deodorant do you think these people are using? Uh, I, I think it was one stick of deodorant I saw out there. For everyone? Yeah, uh, I think it's... It's pretty functified, but the spirit is good out there, Tabitha. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. what's counting. This is what happens when you grow up. You start off young, and you feel like you are so right because you think you understand what good and evil is. And the longer you stay alive, the bigger the gray area is between good and evil. And the thinner the line is between good and evil. It's like it's not there. It, you, you end up having like a completely different take on things as opposed to when you were 20 something years old and you had all these hopes and dreams to get things going. The older you get, you end up realizing that if I go too far, I'm going to hurt my cause. When you're young, you don't know what the line is. I think this is less about age maturity and more about societal implications when you live in capitalism. Yeah, I, I think it's not good versus evil. I think it's selling out and not selling yeah, out. Yeah, because the thing is, in, in, in a capitalistic society, is, is dollar rules, right? You, you have more money, you have more status, you have more relief in life, you have less stress, right? So no matter what, no matter how pure your intentions, no matter what you're doing, no matter what charitable thing, if somebody walks up to you and says, hey, I can give you a million dollar check if we do it this way, you're, you're going to take it. You're right. But my thing is, is back in the day when they started the festival, it wasn't about the money. It was more about the message. And now 
after they've done this how many times, it's all about the money. Yeah, but if it wasn't about the money, they wouldn't have charged for tickets. I don't think, uh, yeah, it was about the money. They yeah. blew it, and it became about the message. Though. Yeah. Originally, it was a business venture to make money. And they had they to just, make it about the message because they were blowing the money. They went over budget from 200000 to $2 million. But what I'm saying is... But the message is what resonated, and that's the history of Woodstock. But what I'm but saying is they've also, they've also learned their lessons from other festivals. They've already they've already learned where they went right, where they went wrong. Where did you make extra money where we didn't? This is, again, this is all an evolution. It's like it's the evolution of a business mind. So, again, where they weren't making money off vendors, and I don't even know if that was even a thing back in the day, like making money off vendors like we do now. I mean, like when you throw a festival, that's, that's big-time money, the vendors. We need to get these people on board. It's real estate. Yeah. So I don't know exactly – if that was even an idea or if that was a possibility back in back when the first Woodstock started. But I do know it's, it's evolved into this now. Right now, something really nice going on. As you know earlier, I told you it's 250,000 people here at least. They are cleaning up the place. They started passing out garbage bags. And what they're doing is filling it with trash and passing it back almost like just lifting people, but they're lifting the trash back to the edges and over the wall. That is really cool. As you can see behind me, they're passing it back. It looks like fish in the ocean just popping up. And Woodstock 94 would resurge many careers like Bob Dylan and be a successful venture for all the performers that played to that massive stage. Nine Inch Nails downplayed their performance, stating they only played the large event to break even on their current tour. But there is no doubt that one performance changed their career trajectory completely. MTV's investment and ratings would also be huge during their coverage day-to-day, and the seeds of Woodstock's 30th anniversary would start almost immediately. What are your memories of that show, and what do you think it did for this movement of heavy music? Well, they were really pushing this movement hard. It was like this breakout metal festival with a few other artists sprinkled in. I remember getting there and just going, oh my God, look at this place. This is Woodstock. What an honor. How amazing. I mean, it was definitely the highlight of rap metal music. 1999 was upon us just five years later. And although Michael Lang would be involved in Woodstock 99, he would later call it MTV stock. The channel and media conglomerate took over completely with all the avenues to the festival. But of course, things are a little different in 1999 than they were in 1969. This time it would be set in Rome, New York, and being held from July 22nd all the way to the 25th instead of late August. Woodstock 99 would add two extra days from 94 and an extra stage, having three this time. Woodstock 94 only had two. For us two, it was crazy. I think it was the greatest show we ever played and are ever going to play. It was just... Amazing to play in front of 400,000 plus people and them all get it and be right there with us and feel what we were doing. It was amazing to see people jump in the music and because there's so many people seeing how the sound travels, seeing the waves as people jumping. It was just ridiculous. Woodstock 99 was unforgettable. That was a pretty big moment. That was, a, that was the biggest moment in our career because it was so intense. Never done anything like that before. Still haven't. <laughs> 
rocked that place that first night, and everybody had fun. The second night, the biscuit it up for everybody. <laughs> they really did. Now, the musical revolution at the time was much angrier than just five years prior, with the rise of new metal and rap rock at the forefront. Acts like Limp Biscuit, Corn, Insane Clown Posse, DMX, and Rage Against the Machine would command the audience into a frenzy. Adding the heat, which would reach 100 degrees during this time, caused fatigue for the audience. The vibe would be dangerous almost on the outset, and many performers would incite the crowd when bad behavior was seen. I don't think they understood that I meant, okay, let's get rid of all that negativity so we can bring positive in. That means start jumping, you know, jumping and singing. It doesn't mean start raping and, and burning the place down. That's definitely not what I meant. Rage Against the Machine would burn an American flag during its performance. During Limp Biscuit's performance, a crowd-surfing girl would be pulled down and gang-raped in the mosh pit. And the same thing would occur as well during Korn's performance to another female concert goer. If you want to step up, I hope you know a pack of I'm asking your ass wrong. And if my day keeps going this way, I just might break something tonight. I pack a chainsaw. I'm asking your ass wrong. And if my day keeps going this way, I just might break something tonight. I pack a chainsaw. I'm asking your ass wrong. And if my day keeps going this way, I just might break your fucking face tonight. Give me some break. Give me some to break Give me some to break How about your fucking face? I hope you know I'm like a chainsaw An anti-gun violence group called PAX would pass out candles so they can get them lit during the Red Hot Chili Peppers performance so the audience can light the candles when they play the song Under the Bridge, a ballad. And after that, bonfires started everywhere, and people would start large fires to merch booths. When the Chili Peppers returned to the stage for an encore, frontman Anthony Kiedis stated that it looked like a scene from the Vietnam-era war film Apocalypse Now, and then broke into a cover version of Jimi Hendrix's Fire. You want to do it? You want to do it? What is the artist's attitude toward the audience in Woodstock 99, and do they hold any responsibility for trying to incite an audience of 400,000 people? I think you have a responsibility when you are an artist and people are there to see you, when you see this kind of things happening, to stop. You don't continue to play. You don't, you don't continue to give the people. If you are not going to play like adults and play by the rules, then I don't give a fuck what ticket you paid for. You forfeit your right to this experience. You might be right on that, but... At the same time, though, we're just expecting artists who have been, who are so full of themselves, who have been, you know. Also probably on drugs. <laughs> probably on drugs. 
you're asking them to stop acting like gods, and that's part of what they do. Like, that's why they are where they're at. Their and job's not security. Their job's not security. They get off. When it is a great show, you know that front man is also having a great show. I've been to shows where the front man is watching the audience and he's pissed. I've been to a, what was it, The Cult. And I watched Ian Asbury just goes, you guys suck. And, and it's like he did like probably six songs and then he was done. Like, it was the weirdest concert I've ever been to. But then I've seen other bands where there's probably... 20, 30 people, a band called Terror, I saw open up for Suicidal Tendencies, and there might have been 50, 60 people at the House of Blues, and I've never seen someone command a rabid group like this, and it was incredible, because you're in on it. This guy's getting off on his power. The people are gravitating towards it. It is amazing. You, you're, you're, as a young man, especially, in my early, like early 20s, there's something about that just that just gets my blood Going, but unfortunately, I, when you're in that the moment, no. But when you're in that moment, when you're in that moment, though, and especially as a frontman, you don't know what's going on. I'm pretty sure Fred Fred Durst would have been like, "Hey, look, you can do it all for the nookie. Just don't rape." You know what I mean? And it's like I'm pretty sure it's like if he knew what was going on. But you're looking at thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. But Anthony Kiedis said it looked like apocalypse now, and then was like, "Well, I'll play fire." Right. <laughs> like- you I mean, he goes, saying? he's like, like, well, I'll play. So he was aware of, he did read the room. He knew what was happening and he made it into a tongue in cheek rock and roll joke. But when you're looking at the crowd and look how many faces, I'm just talking faces. How many faces can he see at night? You're probably only seeing like happy faces up front. Everybody looks like they're having a good time. He's probably thinking, oh, they're just warming their hands. I mean, like he probably doesn't know exactly just where they're he at. He said it looks like apocalypse it now, looks Brandon. looks like apocalypse now. That is now. his words. What do you mean? You're not from the Midwest <laughs> and seen a bunch of bonfires. It's the same shit. I've seen it. <laughs> Scattered bonfires raged out of control for several hours. Vending stalls were looted and light towers toppled. But was Woodstock 99's fiery end enough to shroud the event in regret? All I can say is that when we were on stage, our experience was it was the greatest concert of all time. And I had no idea that the finger would be pointed at me as a guy starting a riot. But I guess, you know, to this day, it's going to be something that Limp Biscuit up. Yeah, dude, a gang rape in a mosh pit means everybody's watching it. Yeah. Flat out. And see, and that's despicable. And it happened twice? Right. And it happened twice. So at the Limp Biscuit, uh, when he was... Now, I'm not saying Fred Durst knew about it or Jonathan Davis, the lead singer of, of Corn. Corn. The point is, is that the audience knew about it. Right. And the audience can easily have stopped it or made something happen, but it was allowed to happen during a mosh pit while people are running around, you know, and things like that. So the audience that was incited was not there for peace and love. They were there for anarchy, anarchy at its worst. Do I think that it's bad to play a cover song of Jimi Hendrix Fire, an ode to Jimi Hendrix from the first Woodstock? See, that's what I was thinking. Okay, yeah, well, fires are dangerous and they're not supposed to be happening. And when vendors' booths are on fire and people are getting burned. But what what I am also saying is, though, this might have already been part of the plan to play that song as an ode to Jimi Hendrix. I think it was, don't get me wrong, but the point is, maybe stop and say, everybody get away from that fire, let's get safety over here, can you guys access that? Let's stop partying because what you're doing is, in, in essence, somebody out there is going to listen to that song and be like, start more Anthony fires. Kiedis did have an addiction to I, drugs. I write so into my he will. Didn't read it. I write into my will that I, I want fire played at my funeral and then I'm burned alive. Oh, Do you dude. think that maybe someone makes the <laughs> judgment I want call you to, to p- switch it up? Play, <laughs> you know? just, I want you to explode me. I'm just saying, like, I think that there is... 
something to be said for the irresponsibility of artists believing that I do agree. I will always agree that art is art and should not be blamed for people's uh, behavior, but you need to live in reality. And as an artist, you need to understand that you influence people's because mentally ill people are your fans. People with poor judgment are your fans. People with poor willpower are your fans. You burn an American flag, and as much as I'm the first person to tell you, don't get too attached to your symbolism because that's some high-level stupid shit. Yeah. But you burn an American flag in front of a group of kids that are disenfranchised with America years after the Gulf War, you're going to start some fucking fires. People are going to get hurt. It's irresponsible. You're going to break stuff. Yeah. You're going to rub somebody's ass raw with a chainsaw. I hate you. <laughs> when I think of Woodstock, I think of that incident with Limp Bizkit. The stuff that happened there was kind of like the way Altamont was, you know, like you had the original Woodstock being this amazing music festival, and Altamont being the point where, like, you know, the 60s culture jumped the shark. Maybe that was the turning point where things had gotten out of hand. That music became excess and spectacle and disrespect to audience and peers in a way that you saw at the most awful heights of the hair metal bands. This character, Fred Durst thing, this monster that was created, you know, it sort of backfired on me. There was always negativity thrown at Limp Bizkit. Nobody really wanted us here in the first place. You know, nobody really wanted rap in the first place and nobody really wanted metal in the normal world. So rap metal, Oh, now the metal guys don't want it and the rappers don't want the metal. So I just think that it was, I'm just that guy, I guess. Yeah, maybe I'm that guy. Now here's a quote from MTV News correspondent Kurt Loder that is on the Woodstock 99 Wikipedia page. It was dangerous to be around. The whole scene was scary. There were just waves of hatred bouncing around the place. It was clear we had to get out of there. It was like a concentration camp. To get in, you get frisked to make sure you're not bringing any water or food that would prevent you from buying their outrageously priced boots. You wallow around in garbage and human waste. This was a palpable mood of anger. People would die of heat stroke due to the outrageous vendor prices and heat. Gang rapes, burglary, fires, lawsuits against the promoters, and chaos would be the staple of this festival. And Altamont now would have a sister, but this time it would bear the name Woodstock, and the branded legacy would forever be changed. Do you think that aggro vibe had uh, anything to do with what yeah, happened? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that that's what drew the large male, white male, Abercrombie Fitch population of young, white, male, frustrated, upper middle class, I've been given everything and still I'm mad, but I'm not really sure why I'm mad, kind of attitude. We're 25 feet up in the air, separated from everyone, there's a sea of people, and we had sound difficulties, but from what we looked, saw, it looked like everyone was having an amazing time. Yeah. You have no idea that there was anything negative happening. Is this the end of Woodstock? Don't be so sure, it's still a powerful brand name, and there's still money to be made. Woodstock 99, goodbye and maybe good riddance. What did Woodstock 99 do to the brand and legacy of Woodstock? I would just like to point out to Brandon that uh, people called it a concentration camp. So I think the lead singers noticed. Okay. <laughs> I was like, that guy's skinny. <laughs> I just want to point out that if people feel like it's a concentration, it was probably yeah. pretty obvious. Yeah. People are yeah, starving, not drinking water, yeah. the, 100, 100 degree heat, the, packed the, into a place. <laughs> the thing about humans is we love our culture. We love our religious culture, our spiritual culture. We love whatever culture we're a part of, whether it's our racial culture, our country's culture. Uh, counterculture, the culture that you live in with your music, right? This is, and the thing is, is you, 
if you create a culture, you must maintain a culture. So this was my point earlier about being irresponsible and allowing certain things to happen is once you allow things that are against what your culture's values are to penetrate a cultural celebration that is in that sort of uh, part of society, you you have violated the rules of that society and it no longer exists. Uh, we were just afraid that we were going to get hurt. We, we had, um, we all had pipes and stuff trying to protect ourselves because we didn't know what was going to happen. It started off uh, with just a few bonfires in, in the garbage cans and then before we knew it, the stage was, uh, part of the stage was on fire and, and then the tractor trailers and then explosions and it's pretty disgusting. I can't believe that people would uh, wreck a place like this. The uh, absolute weirdest thing I saw was the fact that over there about 40 yards or so was a uh, four ATM machines, and they managed to disappear in under two minutes. First, I was afraid for the stuff. I was afraid for the, um, all the merchandise. I thought it, I was afraid it was going to get stolen. Um, then I was just afraid. I, I didn't want to get hurt. I didn't want anybody I was with to get hurt. And it really bothered me because this is supposed to be about peace, and it was destruction for no reason. Well, you were talking about it started off as a concert of for peace and love, and the exact opposite happened. Obviously, that's going to forever tarnish the the legacy of Woodstock and people are going to remember that just like I just got done saying on this very episode I remember Billy Joe Armstrong getting hit when hit with mud I remember Trent Reznor tripping his guitar player with the with the S ninety four that wasn't happening in the original Woodstock like. You know, Jimi Hendrix was like running behind his bass player and tripping him, possibly causing him to hit the back of his head on the stage. Like that wasn't happening. I, so I really do think that the '94 Woodstock with some of the images that we saw in there was anarchy, people throwing mud, and it's not like there was violence or anything like that. But we were watching that on TV, and I'm like, this looks out, look kind of out of control. I want to do this. Then you had five more years of promotion saying, "Yo, this is going to be this crazy," and then you hire bands that are straight up male party bands anarchists anarchists punk rock that's it and it's like so the music the music wasn't necessarily angry back in the 60s it was it, they were angry they had a reason to be angry they had they were mad towards the war but they there were was, fighting it with love they were fighting it with love now in 99 it's like what the fuck are you fighting That's kind of what we're doing right now in society. I was having this conversation the other day. All we do is charge up our young people, and we've been doing this for years. All the cartoons, comic book movies, do something, be a hero, stand up for what you believe in, do something, be a hero, stand up for what you believe in. Well, these kids, they want to. 
They want to do the right thing. They want to they want to be the hero. But they're so charged up and they're like, "All right, now get out there and fight evil." And then they run out of the house like, "Where's the evil? I don't know." And then that, then what they do is they find the smallest, tiniest crime and they overreact because they think they're doing the right thing. That this is the same this is exactly what's going on in Woodstock, right? This is exactly what's going on with the music. It's like the music, the vibe, the music, the musical revolution. It wasn't violent, but it was dark. The music was dark. These guys were talking about emotions, they were talking about depression, they were talking about real life things about themselves. All the music was internalized. And now we have five more years of internalized music. It's not bringing people together. But alongside the good-natured debauchery, there was an undercurrent of male aggression young women as the all-too-frequent targets. Just because a girl wants to go crowd surfing or whatever, that doesn't give the guys the right to molest them, you know what I'm saying? It was disgusting. I was molested, and I hate all men now. And you would do it again? Of course. Eight rapes and sexual assaults during the festival were reported to New York police, who have made an arrest in one of the cases. I think this has a lot more to do with what happens when you pump money into something that's supposed to be about message. But when you when you maintain that message as the priority, you can have a really profitable business with a really lovely core. We see it all throughout. We have tons of businesses in America that profit in capitalism, but they keep message as number one. The issue here is at some point along the path with Woodstock is they forgot that they needed to have a reason to be up there. They didn't just need to throw Woodstock to throw Woodstock, but they needed a reason to be up there and they kept pumping money into it. And when you pump money into it and it becomes about profit, the message gets skewed and that's how things become like this. Bands were playing for money. They were gouging the fans. It was only set to build money. When we talk about part two of this episode and we talk about the spiritual place up in Bethel, New York, where this thing happened, everything was set to fail and money didn't matter yet it came back from the documentary film and everybody was there for a reason okay that is completely gone by 99 99 was just set to burn the brand of woodstock pay the artists an exorbitant amount of money all those artists were just there for a check they didn't give a fuck about the and that's what i'm saying and then and then after this all happens they're going to walk away they're going to take the lawsuits and then people are going to walk away with their checks but nobody gave a shit there's no purpose behind this except to make money off of the youth. Excuses for the boorish behavior were far more abundant than the venue's minimal amenities, like free water or toilets. Just coming out of the seats. I mean, that's, that shouldn't be for us. There was the oppressive heat, the ugliness of Griffiths Air Force Base, and of course, the high prices for food and drink. You know, at this point, people were so broke and so out of it, they didn't give a They were getting something out of Woodstock, whether they had to tear it down or hurt somebody. To me, what I saw Woodstock 99 as compared to the first Woodstock. You look at the first Woodstock and the attitude was different, obviously. The music was different, obviously. The difference is, is the artists also were behind the music. The artists were not behind the music. The artist was also behind the message. They were full, fully behind the message. Limp Bizkit wasn't behind the message. Corn wasn't behind the message. They just wanted to outdo the guy that was before them. And how do you do, how do you outdo a band? You go crazier. But that's also to the point of, you know, they were behind the message. They were behind the message of profit. We're here to make money. These guys all had to bring it. And they also, these guys all had to get the audience vibing. All they wanted to do was see the audience jumping with them. And unfortunately, when you got one band that's like, oh man, that were awesome. And this guy comes along and he does something even crazier. And this guy comes along and does something even crazier. Yeah, bro, the audience is going to feed off that. The, and, it's, and all it is is angry male energy. If you get everybody drunk, 
charge them six bucks for a bottle of water, then play a bunch of rage, angst, anger, frustration with really violent bands. I don't know why they're surprised it turned out the way it did. They forgot how powerful music is. If you play songs of hope and, and love and exaltation of the spirit and questing for knowledge to people, you pull a certain kind of people and you generate a certain kind of vibe. This whole video serves as a sad reminder that an era when 500,000 people could celebrate a weekend together in peace now seems like a time gone by. And by the way, less than half as many people showed up for Woodstock 99 compared to the original. Now, the 40th anniversary of the festival came by in 2009, and it would just be performed as the Heroes of Woodstock tour across America. And at the 50th anniversary in 2019, Michael Lang would try to revive the festival, but financial backing was pulled, and issue after issue would occur, and the event would get canceled, leaving the end of Woodstock, in most people's eyes, that of 1999. To make things worse, Lang and Woodstock 50 lost its appeal against former financial backers Dentsu, and in the meantime, the organizers were proposing relocating the festival to New York's Vernon Downs, which was both a casino and a track located in Vernon, New York. However, reports came out that the organizers hadn't notified the performing acts of the possible new location. Fast forward to July of this year, and finally this month, city officials had ended up denying the festival's permit to host the festival at Vernon Downs. And city officials called the event a recipe for disaster and said that police cannot guarantee the safety of the public. The organizers tried to appeal the decision, but the end finally came on July 17th. The organizers lost their appeal, and the festival's backing production company, Virgin, had also pulled out, telling Polestar, it's become apparent that time has expired. And earlier this week, Michael Lang sat down with Rolling Stone and talked about everything that went wrong with Woodstock 50. He first brushed off any comparisons to the Fire Festival, claiming that the Fire Festival was a scam, and he never saw Woodstock 50 as a scam. He also talked about the biggest factor in canceling the event, saying the lateness of the confirmation of some of the headline talent that would carry the day, just what needed to be done to put this thing together in the next week and a half. It became unnecessary to knock ourselves out and not do it right and not have the message get out properly. He also talked a bit about losing some of the financial partners and his battle with the town of Vernon Downs. Has the original magical event been tarnished forever because of all the events that followed, or will it always have its own legacy? It will always have its own legacy. I don't think, because here's the thing, is it's 2020, and Woodstock is still a household name. Children still know what Woodstock is. So there is a legacy there. There's legend in it. It's never going to go away. It Because it is... Um, I think it also has something to do with because it's, it's politically tied with the Vietnam War. So it's always going to be in that conversation, you know, when we're, t we're writing history books. That was some of the greatest the images. Yeah. Those pictures, yeah. those videos, it's like you, those, those movies and stuff like that, that came out from the original Woodstock, it really painted a picture. It of really captures on. the yeah. time, you know, in a way that just, you know, most things can't newspaper articles and stuff. So I think Woodstock will always be a legend. I think it will, it will always have a legacy. I think in, in 20. 200 they'll be talking about it i think the original woodstock will always have a legacy and i do think the 99 version 
will always have its legacy for just being so opposite. This is what happens when you let the wrong people get involved. This is what happens when you let ego get involved instead of the message. Well, and it's also what happens when you don't evolve in the right ways. Woodstock did not start off as a festival for festival's sake. Right. It started off for the love and the music. That's what it was about. You were going, the people that were there, they were there for the feeling. That feeling has never been remade. That feeling cannot be bottled up. That, can, that feeling can't be sold. You took a festival that started off about peace, love, and music. And then you ended it with fire and rape. I remember getting off the stage and having some policemen with my manager come around me and say, Fred, I think you kind of incited a riot. They started ripping down buildings and the scaffolding, and that's the plywood you were surfing on. That wasn't from walkways going to the restroom. They were tearing down things, and there's people getting hurt. And I go, I didn't see any of that. Everybody I saw was having an amazing time. Fred with his, like, come on, let's break stuff, that song, him doing that, it just sent it over the top, and that's when all that stuff happened. There was people hurt, people got beat up, hit, all this craziness. He instigated the whole damn thing. I was right there watching it. It wasn't a fun Woodstock-type love fest. It really turned violent, it turned ugly. It was really a dark moment in music, and instead of stopping the show, Fred Durst stoked the flames. Three days of music, peace, and love ended with arson and rioting early today at Woodstock 99. Whatever the reasons, concertgoers began destroying property, starting fires and rioting. <laughs> Twitter and Instagram at your buddy Gooch. Jocelyn Sharp on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Jocelyn Sharp. Sylvia Alvarado on Twitter and Instagram at It's the Sylvia. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Rise to Offend and on Instagram at Rise to Offend Official. And make sure to listen to us every Monday on the Metal Sucks podcast on MetalSucks.net. Email us comments, questions, errors we may have made, or any figure you would like us to cover rise to offend at gmail.com discover the story of woodstock pick up the books by michael lang Artie kornfeld and many others for each personal take on the festival watch the feature film documentary woodstock three days of peace and music in the director's cut version all available where media is sold and check out david hoffman on youtube for many documentaries on the culture of the 60s and his studies on generations in american culture and make sure to watch the videos for woodstock 94 Woodstock 99, and the documentary film The Rolling Stones Gimme Shelter for a bird-eye view on all the bands and performers at these shows and the events that followed. All content on this show is copyrighted by its owners. Thank you all so much for the reviews on iTunes. These five-star reviews are helping this show grow and is all we can ask from you guys. Please, if you listen to the show and appreciate all the hard effort behind it, review the show on iTunes for us. It truly means the world that you take the time to listen and to review the show. Until next week, repeat offenders, RTO Podcast, signing off.